and welcome to Writer's Book Club, the podcast where we take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. I'm your host, Michelle Barakoff, and a very happy June to all of you. It's the first day of winter here in Australia, and it definitely feels like it. I can't believe I swam in the ocean last weekend, and this week I'm sitting here in my Ugg boots with a blanket on my knees. Still, I guess we always have our Northern Hemisphere friends on Instagram, don't we? Heading off to cabins on lakes in Michigan and lavender farms in Provence or Greek islands or wherever they're going. So if we need a little hit of summer, just hit Insta. Before we jump into the interview, I just wanted to send a virtual hug to Laura Boone and Joanna Nell, who left two rather blush-inducing reviews on Apple Podcasts this month. Thank you so much, Laura and Joe, for your very flattering reviews. So two things. Firstly, Joe and Laura are both talented authors, and you should definitely go and check out their novels. Joanna writes contemporary novels that are brilliant combination of heart and humour. And Laura writes excellent romance novels and has also written a terrific book that breaks down the publishing industry for emerging authors so they can navigate the whole pitching and submission royalties agent process. I'll put some links in the show notes to both of those authors and their books so you can check them out. And secondly, if you would like to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, you'll not only be helping other writers who are noodling around on their phones looking for a good writing podcast, but I'll give you a little shout out on the podcast too. Stick around after the interview. I'll be telling you all about my next author on the podcast and details about how you can win a copy of her novel. And come on, who doesn't love a free novel, especially when it's such good novel reading weather? Okay, on to the interview. This month, I had the pleasure of chatting with Nigel Featherstone about his new novel, My Heart is a Little Wild Thing, which has just been released by Ultimo Press. I loved this novel so much. The writing's gorgeous, the settings in Bundanoon and Palm Beach, and particularly the Monero country around Cooma and that whole area, are perfectly evoked. The themes of the novel also really resonated for me. It's a sort of a middle-aged, coming-of-age story, if you like. I'm not sure if it resonated because I also am a, a woman of a certain age, but there you go. Let's just put that aside. Anyway, Nigel and I talk about that. And it's also a kind of a grand love story as well, sort of that once-in-a-lifetime love. It also shows that it's really never too late to seek a more fulfilling life. So it's the story of Patrick, who has always considered himself a good son, willing to live his life to please his parents, his sense of duty paramount to his own desires and dreams. But as his mother's health continues to deteriorate and his siblings remain absent, he finds the ties that bind him to his mother begin to chafe. After an argument leads to a violent act, he travels to a familiar country retreat to reflect on what his life could be. And through a chance encounter with a rare animal and an intriguing stranger, Patrick starts to wonder if perhaps it's not too late to let his heart run wild. Nigel is the author of Bodies of Men, which received a 2019 Canberra Critics Circle Award. It was also long-listed and short-listed for several other awards. I also loved that novel, and you should definitely get your hands on it if you can. Nigel is a published playwright, songwriter, and essayist, and as I discovered, the man knows a thing or two about writing. 
Here's Nigel. Oh, and just quickly, Nigel and I do touch on some adult concepts in this chat. So if you do have small ears around, just make sure you've got your earbuds or headphones on. Nigel Featherstone, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Michelle. You've just had a book launch. I have indeed. So the, <laughs> the Canberra launch uh, of my uh, for my heart is the well thing was on Saturday, so that was absolutely wonderful, and uh, we had a wonderful crowd and and in conversation with Anna Vito from ABC Radio Canberra. She's mm. the drive presenter, and just really wonderful questions from Anna and also from the floor, and celebrating with a whole bunch of wonderful folks. So I. I I have to say I find book launches incredibly nerve-wracking to the, to the point that beforehand I always say to myself I'm never writing another book because I don't want another launch. <laughs> but once they're done and dusted, uh, I yeah, you always look back on them and think that was a, a lovely thing to do. I'd been watching on socials, so it went from sort of one venue in a bookshop, I think, and then it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally you had to do it in a hall or something, didn't you? It was moved to um, a cultural centre at the ANU. So it was held at, it was originally a, 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 an initiative of uh, Harry Hartog ANU, beautiful two-storey Harry Hartog store. And, yeah, that sold out, I think, within 24 hours. So then they increased the tickets availability and then they said, look, we'll just move it to a, a, a brand-new theatre right next door, which was wonderful, great venue. And... And it was a fully masked event as well. So I think people maybe felt a bit more comfortable maybe being in a big theatre. Yeah, Everybody right. was wearing masks because it was a requirement. And I think that made people feel a bit bit more confident and comfortable, which was yeah. great. So you might not love book launches, but book launches clearly love you. Sell out crowd, amazing. Well, thank, thank you, Michelle. That's very, very nice of you. It certainly just... I always encourage other writers to have book launches, but <laughs> privately I find them just <laughs> no very nerve-wracking. Yeah. Well, congratulations on My Heart is a Little Wild Thing. I absolutely adored this novel, Nigel. Thank you so much, Michelle. That's very kind of you. Tell me, what sparked the idea for this novel, Nigel? Where did, where did it come from? Well, it's a really fascinating question because this is, this is just true, that once I'd finished the, the, the manuscript and gone through the edits and the final version had gone back to my publisher, Robert Watkins at uh, Ultimo, I, I, I always try, I, I tidy up my writing space. I like to have it pretty tidy, but, you know, at the end of the edits, there's just stuff everywhere. So I thought I'm going to spend a, a morning tidying my writing space. And I was putting something away in my reading room, which is adjacent. I'm very lucky to have two rooms to do those two things. And one of my old writing journals literally fell out. I know this sounds like, you know, something you'd find, you know, in a movie, but one of my old writing journals, quite a small one, fell out of the bookshelf, landed on the floor, and I just went, oh, okay, whatever, and I opened it and written inside in my handwriting, of course, was something about a guy needs to get away, he goes to a farm, he sees an animal that leads him to meet someone who will change his life. And I looked at it and it was it was written in either June or July but the year I remember very clearly, 2007. And so I've had this idea of, of somebody who needs to get away from whatever it was and he sees an animal that leads him to meet a man who will change his life. And I was really shocked that I'd had this idea for so long. 
And so it's gone through lots of different permutations. Sometimes the permutations, rather, it was sometimes set, I live in Goulburn. Sometimes it was set in Crookrawl, which is a, a town about an hour west of Goulburn. Sometimes it was set in Braidwood, which is a town southeast, an hour southeast of Goulburn, where my father lives. And then I just kept on going further and further south and until I did a recce down to Nimitabel, which is just to the north of the Monero, which is this expansive, barren, high plain between the south coast of New South Wales and the Snow Mountains. And I've always been fascinated with it. And I thought, this is where the novel needs to be. And there's some more things, you know, I'd love to talk about from there. But it, it did go through quite a few iterations until finally I went and stayed there mm. in the guts of the Monero. And that just changed everything. And then I guess then you've got to put your novel brain on, don't you, and say, well, this is all very well as an idea. Now I've got the setting, but I need something to really kick this, to kick off the drama and, you know, start building some some conflict and some tension and, and yeah. set this character off on his journey. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing that I learned, I've, I think I've always, I've always adored plays for a very long time and I love writing about plays and landscape mm-hmm. and nature. And one thing I learned from writing Bodies of Men, my war novel, was, and that's partly set in Egypt, in Alexandria, and then the Western Desert, so Second World War novel. And everybody loved all the, you know, the setting of the desert and, the uh, Alexandria in 1941, and that was one of the things that people kept on talking about. And and I realised that I didn't really have a magic setting for this novel until I stayed, did that recce tour of, of the Monero, uh, and it was winter and it was freezing cold, and then I went back actually in summer. And basically I threw out the novel I was working on, which was another, a previous version of this, and rewrote it from scratch oh really wow okay that's so interesting and so it was really setting dependent then really setting setting, yeah and and because you know we'd been through that terrible summer of 2019 2020 and you know basically i mean I, i know for everybody really in the east coast of australia that summer but goulburn and the ACT district just didn't have blue sky for three months you know back then we were wearing masks because of smoke and I had arranged to go and stay at a property called Babundra, which is right in the guts of the Monero. There's, you know, your phone has no reception. The laptop doesn't work. There's nothing. You're 30 kilometres from the nearest supermarket, which I guess in this community is not that far, but, you know, you still, it's still a trip. Yeah. And uh, it was arranged earlier in the summer and then the summer happened and then I, I really still wanted to go and I'd arranged to stay there from uh, a week in uh, February 2020 and the owner of the property, Tricia Dixon, said, look, do you really want to come down here? It's terrible. There's smoke everywhere and there's burnt bush everywhere and and I, I just said to myself, you know, I still think I need to do this. It might be a bit dangerous. The Kosciuszko fire had gone through only days before but it wasn't being, you know, irresponsible. The, every, every, all the roads were closed and the fire had definitely moved on. And, I, and yeah, I, I stayed down there and it, it just changed everything. So how did the process of then putting it on the page start for you? What did your writing practice look like throughout the writing of this novel? So it really did go through lots of different iterations. I had that core concepts, but it went through, you know, sometimes Patrick, who's my main character, was 
18. Sometimes he was, you know, 50 or 60 or 70. At times the novel was written from two points of view, which I had done previously with Bodies of Men. And there was always something that just wasn't clicking. And then I did give a version to my agent, Gabby Nea, at Left Bank Literary, and, and she said, she gave me this wonderful advice, which was either the novel had to become a big epic or it needed to become a really intimate, tender book. And I said to her, I'm going to make it a big epic. And she goes, well, I'm surprised, but, you know, go for it. Uh, turns out I'm not good at writing big epics. Uh, and I ditched that one myself. I finished it and then thought, mm, I'm not going to bother Gabby's time with that. So you wrote the whole novel and then thought, no, I have to start again. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And I write everything by hand as in um, pen on paper. And I just... I. In, in fact, with the, the, the frank response is I thought it was really good and I just needed a better title. And I woke up one morning very early, or middle of the night really, and I had the title. And I thought, yep, all i got to do in the morning, put the new title on the manuscripts, send it to Gabby, it's going to be great. It's a great title. And I did do that, had my little coffee, opened the file in the morning, put it in there. The whole thing collapsed, just mentally and creatively. The whole thing collapsed, and I went, "Okay, I'm not, I'm out. I'm not going to pursue that version of it." Oh my god, Nigel, that is just—it just, <laughs> just collapsed. Have you had those moments where you oh, just, yeah. you, you just think, you know, what? I'm not sure this is good enough. But you, know? you have to also then ask yourself if it's just regular old, you know, writer's doubt. doubt. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just knew. But you I, knew, yeah. Yeah. And I think because Gabby is wonderfully, productively very blunt, and so I, I guess I really didn't want to waste her time if I wasn't excited. I remember sort of thinking, oh, if Gabby's not interested in this, fine, I'll write something else. And I thought, oh, that's, there's something in that, mm. you know. A writer, I think, should be almost devastated if their agent says this is not good enough, and I'd already had that before. So, yeah, so... I think I had done about eight or nine different versions of it and then had that stay for a week down in Bobundra. Mm. I stayed in a barn, a steading, a stone steading, and I was there to edit this epic version. And Tricia, the owner of the property, is a very erudite person. She leaves, leads literary tours in Europe as well as running this farm. And I remember I'd be editing. I'm quite a disciplined person. I'd go, okay, up at six, editing. And there was this wonderful library. And there was a Stephen Fry memoir. And I thought, oh, I might just read a bit of Stephen Fry. And then I'd go, no, come on, go back to editing. And then I'd go, oh, I wonder how Stephen Fry is going. I'd read a bit more Stephen Fry. And then I'd go do a bit more editing. And then I thought, you know, quite honestly, if I was in this beautiful old barn, with my book or Stephen Fry's memoir, I'd prefer to read the Stephen Fry memoir. And I thought that that's telling me something too. And I'm not particularly, you know, mega mad fan of Stephen Fry's, but it was a very entertaining memoir. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was just sitting on the steps of this beautiful old heritage-listed barn surrounded by nothing except smoke in the sky. And I thought, God, if there was a man just over there or anyone planting trees, I would just go, look, can I just spend a few days planting trees? That would be a good use of my time. It's just plant trees. You just tell me what to do and I'll dig holes and you can put the trees in the ground. And, and, then, I, and then I thought, oh, 
that's a bit interesting. What if what if my character is here? He's he's come down here. Something terrible has happened. He's sitting on the steps with a glass of wine, and he sees someone planting trees. And then I thought, I can't do that. That's just too convenient. And then I thought, remember why I'm here? There's an animal. He sees an animal that leads him to meet a man who's planting trees. And as soon as I had that, Michelle, I thought, drive straight home. It's almost three hours back to Goulburn. Drove, walked in the front door, got into my writing clothes. I do have writing clothes. And wrote, <laughs> Love it. And, and wrote the final version in 14 days. Oh my gosh, that's incredible! Just, I just, I know it. I know it now. I've got it. I've got it. And I just went, just write, write it, write it, write it, write it, and did. That's amazing. So here out, it shall be known as the Stephen Fry yardstick. Something's (laughs) not working. I love that. Yeah, if you prefer to read a Stephen Fry memoir, you've got an issue. And then just wait for the proper inspiration to come along, whatever it might be. That's right. Indeed. What a great story. So you touched on point of view then. Bodies of Men was told from the point of view of the two protagonists in third person. Mm. How different was it writing this new novel in first person? Did it just come to you in first person or was that a really sort of conscious decision? Did you flirt with the third person? Tell me all about point of view. Yeah, it's so fascinating, isn't it? And and I often talk about writing as kind of like this Rubik's Cube thing, you know, which is an irony because I I could never do them as a kid and I still can't do them. But it's kind of that thing, isn't it, where you've got to get this right and then that right. You've got to get the tone right. You've got the voice right, the point of view right, the the narration architecture right. You've got your characters and setting and get it all together. And then sometimes you just know that, no, there's still one little panel with a different colour and it needs to go over there and you move that and then it all sort of falls apart. You've just made me realise that I, I really enjoyed writing some memoir myself, memoir essays, and I'd written about the death of my mother for a magazine called 3AM Magazine. I'd been asked to write about my childhood growing up in the Blue Mountains for uh, the Chicago Quarterly Review for their Australasian edition. And I really enjoyed that. And I was writing in a very fragmentary sort of way, these essays where it just be this, and then I'm going to write about that, I'm going to write about that, now I'm going to write about that memory, and now I'm going to write about this detail. So quite fragmentary. And when I did drive back from Goulburn and knew that I had this story, I thought it would be third person. And, in fact, I did write the first maybe five pages in third, and then I just thought, oh, my God, my heart's just not in it again. What's wrong with me? And then I thought, what? just write it as a memoir. Write it as a fictional memoir. This is Patrick's memoir. And write it in the way that I've been writing these essays. And I, and I, it just, then it flew. Yeah. It just, it, and I wrote the, the, I remember because I wrote in my pad, yeah, the day after I tried to kill my mother, I packed my backpack and left at dawn. And that it just flew. It yeah. you know, and when I say I wrote the whole thing in 14 days, the first version was about maybe about 45, 50,000 words, and it's grown a bit. And I once I had that sort of idea that this was Patrick's memoir, he's writing about this time that changed his life. That was the bit of the Rubik's Cube that went click and mm. and off I went. So that gave you the voice as well. So did you, I think it's Charlotte Wood who talks about when you are a bit stuck in a novel, to go back to that one or two lines where you really nailed the voice and just 
that just clicks the voice back in for you. Was that first line something that you could always go back to or did you just have the voice from then on in? I think I had the voice from then on then, mm. then on in. I think for me, you know, I have been writing for quite a while now and I, and I used to think writing was all about, you know, what goes off, you know, in your head. And, mm. and now I think it's what goes on in your whole body. And a lot of it for me is turning off the brain and, and, and thinking about what's going on in the rest of my body. And, and I think I knew once I had Patrick's first person point of view that it could go from there. But it's really interesting that you talked about Charlotte Wood there because I did finish this version of the novel, send it to my agent, and then myself and my two novelist colleagues and friends, Robin Carolader and Julie Keyes, and I got a residency with Charlotte, uh, courtesy of Byron Writers Festival. And we spent a week with Charlotte. And she talked about how sometimes having a manifesto for work in, and she actually talks about the WA band, The Triffords, around in the 80s and early 90s before the guy had a heart issue and died. But he, his, their great record, Born Sandy Devotional, uh, David McComb, McComb, the McComb, I think, he wrote a manifesto and he said, I want to create a very literary rock album. And Charlotte said for her, sometimes she too has a manifesto. She writes, you know, what do I want to do with this novel? And so I had actually already done this just by sheer fluke in the front of my pad of the of the manuscript that, you know, when I wrote this manuscript, so to speak, uh, I wrote Simplicity, Brevity and Fearless. And that, that, were, that were my three manifesto words. And it, I guess it allowed Patrick to, the brevity, just keep things clear and simple and concise, keep everything simple. But I overcomplicate everything, Michelle, just everything. Even, you know, <laughs> you know, not just novels, you know, just be having friends over for dinner or I'll overcomplicate that. Uh, and then I'd just, I'd been asked to write an essay on Christos Chalkers and I titled that essay Fearless. And, and I thought, well, if I admire him so much for being fearless, maybe Featherstone, it's time for you to be fearless. And so that was one of my, my third key word. And that maybe in answer to your question helped get to that voice. I love that. That's such great advice. I was so happy to see that you, Julie and Robin got that residency because my writing group applied for it as well. And when we missed out, we went, oh, but it couldn't have gone to three nicer writers. (laughs) So thank you for sharing a little bit of what happened on tour and not keeping it all on tour. Thank you. No problems. I think I'm pretty sure the residency is still going and and I know they've had a second one. So yeah, yeah, fingers crossed for you and your group. We didn't apply last year, but yeah, we we hopefully will in the future. Great. because Charlotte's amazing. She's amazing. She's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So you talked just before about writing memoir and in fragments, and that made me think about the structure of this novel. So it's mostly told in a linear fashion with scenes from Patrick's past kind of woven in. But there are also these hints throughout that indicate Patrick is looking back on this time in his life from some future date and one of the sections starts of all the conversations Lewis and I had it is the ones up in the hide that I can remember most vividly which made me think oh we're looking back Patrick's looking back on his life can you tell us about this choice and how it served the story yeah fantastic question uh I think there's I knew Patrick was uh, writing his memoir 
from a few years um, down the track. The, the, pretty well, the story stayed exactly the same except the ending, and I won't sort of spoil for readers either what the ending had been and what it is now, but it that made me know that he was writing it from a time mm. down the track, uh, and he was really looking back on it. I guess like any memoir, you know, you know, when I was writing about my childhood in the Blue Mountains, I guess I still you know, had 40 years of looking back on it and, and remembering or not mem- remembering or misremembering things. For Patrick, it's really only maybe four or five years at the most that he's looking back at this time where his life completely changed. And he wanted to understand it uh, and he wanted to record it and document it and reflect on it and analyse it and know what had, what had happened. But really interestingly, you know, you know, as a novelist, we can, mostly we can record conversations, what we put down on the papers, you're saying this conversation happened in this way. But in terms of memoir, even a fictional memoir, you know, Patrick can't record a conversation that happened five years ago in great detail. You know, I, you know, I had lots of wonderful conversations in Canberra during my launch, and I probably can remember them in pretty good detail, but the way I would record them would not be the same as what somebody how someone else records them. And so Patrick does say it sometimes, you know, this is the way I think I remember it, or I don't remember all these bits. And he even says at one point, I've I've committed to telling the truth. But sometimes I might just embellish because I want to. And I think that's just so so true, you know. Um and, and just from a novelistic perspective, I realised it was really quite difficult because he just has not be, it wouldn't be convincing for him to have a 10-page record of a, of a discussion that happened five years ago. You know, if we think about them, all we remember is, oh, you know, I had a wonderful conversation with my best friend down at Narrabeen and it was just wonderful and then we went out for a walk along the, the, the sand. It was just the most beautiful day. You can't record that in great detail, can you? No, you've, so, just, got the mem- uh, you've just got the feeling of it, haven't you, the tone. The feeling of, of it. moment, yeah. And so it was really interesting when Patrick did actually say, you know, some of this is not going to be recorded absolutely accurately or some of it he might be able to do accurately because it's meant so much to him. So that was absolutely fascinating. And I, I'm not sure that if at all that answered your question. Yeah, no, it did. I, I mean, for me, when I read those sections, it made me think, pay attention. This is important to Patrick's character arc, so you really need to pay attention. And and now that I've you know read the novel, I look back and think, in some ways, it's a a late coming of age story and this was the pivotal point in his life and so those passages where he tells you that he's looking back makes you think okay i need to pay attention this is important to the person that he is going to become right this is why right and and i think that yes because patrick's 45 uh he he lives in the same street as his his mother uh, who's aging rapidly and he is basically a full-time carer and they have a very complex relationship as a lot of gay men do including me and uh he he needs to find his own life and you know i think it's very tempting for all of us to say that the marriage equality and getting same-sex marriage you know legislated 
It was wonderful, and of course, it absolutely was. It was groundbreaking. It, it's probably naive to think it's going to change everyone's life overnight. It's just not going to do that. And for certain people of a certain age where they've got to a certain point where they've just still not really got a grip on their sexuality, and that, that would exist in all you know towns and cities and different types of communities. So I did really want to explore what being gay was like as a, as a middle-aged man. And I think perhaps, you know, the gay community such as, as such as it is has a reputation for being obsessed with you know beauty and youth and perfect bodies and i wanted to explore a man who's you know 45 so he's actually slightly older than me but at the time he was 45 you know bodies are starting to fall apart you know he's still got desires he's still got things he needs to explore a lot to explore and i was very so it's interesting you say that it's a, a coming of age as a middle age coming of age but I did want to explore uh, a gay love story where the men are middle-aged. Yeah, and making him that age sort of our vintage, Nigel. Our parents are of a different generation too. So the kids of today are growing up with marriage equality and a much more tolerant society as a given, whereas that generation of parents just you know, it's very difficult for them to, to get their heads around that. That's right. And and, you know, for my parents' uh, generation, you know, homosexuality was a mental illness until the late 70s. Uh, it was certainly considered an illegal act until mm. in New South Wales until 1983. And, and I was actually 15. And I distinctly remember looking at the Sydney Morning Herald, you know, front page and looking at the headlines and they, the, the parliament was debating getting rid of those laws. And then what else happened in 1983? That AIDS came to Australia. And so, yeah, I think for a lot of parents, it, it would have been, well, one, that even if they were quite caring and sympathetic, there's still the, the medical profession considered a, a mental illness. Schools, you couldn't talk about it. Churches were against it. The law was against mm -hmm. it. The police were against it. Probably a lot of friendships were against it. You know, we all know those stories of men who are going up to headlands uh, on uh, at Manly just to enjoy the day, and mm. they were they were pushed off cliffs and killed. Mm. So for I guess for a lot of parents of that generation, it just would have been out of sheer protection. And then yes. particularly when AIDS, when AIDS happened, I just remember thinking, and this is where Patrick and I share some things. Where if I touch another guy, even just I mean I went to a private school in Sydney, so there was just no there was no talk of being gay. It was just there was it was just it was just, it was, it was the Oscar Wilde thing of, you know, mm -hmm. the love that dare not speak its name. And it was an all boys school, so was it going on? Absolutely, but of no course. one talked about it. And and I and I I broke out of that. I in my twenties, I decided that I was not going to, you know, be be live my life in fear. But that caused some issues. But Patrick's the sort of person who, because he adores his mother and his mother needs him, he could just never pursue it. Mm -hmm. Although, as we learn from the novel, like lots of men of his vintage. He is certainly pursuing it, yeah, just yeah. very privately. I love the way that you do weave in Patrick's past into the narrative. It felt so seamless to me as we learned about his childhood, his developing awareness of his sexuality, his relationships with his parents and siblings, everything that shaped the Patrick that we now see. Do you have any general rules you follow when, when it comes to when and how to incorporate backstory? No, and isn't that challenging? Yes. Isn't it so difficult? <laughs> I, I think with in terms of bodies of men, I, I remember reading, and I don't know where I got this from, but don't sort of 
think too much about where we think backstory would, should go, but where does it make psychological sense for those characters? And they, you know, it might be chapter three or four and they might see an object. And I think that this is where trying to turn the brain off and listen to the rest of the body. And I often talk about getting sort of tummy buzzers, you know, you know, I'm sure you know what I mean. When you think of some a solution in a story and you get a bit of a buzz, you've got to follow that. And Tim mentioned the comedian and songwriter, he talks about spine tingles. And if he's writing a song and he gets a spine tingle, he knows he's onto something. And it's likely that the audience will get the same spine tingle, which I think is amazing. So, so if maybe, maybe I'm writing, you know, chapter two or three, and then there's some major object or maybe it breaks does that resonate with that character and then maybe that's the spot for them to say i'm thinking about something else now so i always try to think when when is it right for the character to think of something from their past and quite honestly if it happens on the opening page maybe that's what we need to explore and I think that the other thing that I, I do, because my writing process is very much stream of consciousness. Once I've got the general, finally got the, <laughs> the, the, the right arc, I still follow the energy and the work. And, uh, and a wonderful novelist, an eminent Australian novelist, Roger MacDonald, who lives about an hour away from me, said to me that you've got to follow the energy in the work. And if you're convinced when you're planning maybe the opening paragraph that it's going to go in direction A, the energy is direction B. You've got to go direction B. And, and I don't think this is spoiling it. I was looking at my journal f- w- in which I wrote the, the manuscript for my heart is a little while thing. And, I, and I, I had listed the key scenes. You know, Lucy Trelaw talks about the, her tentpole scenes and I had listed my tentpole um, scenes. And there was a protest. There was a logging protest that I was very keen to write. That's not in the novel. It was never even written. Obviously, I got to that point and went, I'm not feeling that, so we were just going to jump over that. And you, you probably can yeah. have a rough sense of where that might have fitted since you've read it. But obviously, I got to that and went, no, no we're, we're going somewhere else now. Yeah, because I feel like that would have taken us out of Patrick's story and we're fully invested in Patrick by that stage. Yes. Yeah, yeah that, that's right. And maybe I just intuited that at the time. Yeah. The, the other thing that I, I do is... I do sort of think of what something that um, Irvin Welsh said, you know, the author of Transpotting, and he said, it's your page, you can do whatever you like. And he's got a novel called Filth, which is about a policeman who gets overtaken by a tapeworm. The tapeworm actually overtakes the page. And if you just open it up in a bookshop, you'll see these squiggly marks, and that's the worm speaking over the narrative. And I, and I just love that idea of, you know, he just said, you saw page, just do whatever you want. He actually uses a different word, but do whatever the hell you want with it. And, and how wonderful and freeing that is. So I don't know whether that helps, uh, the, the back, backstory question. It does. Also, I love that advice about following the energy. Yes, yeah. I was going to ask you about editing later, but it's a good segue into that now because where does the editing come in then for something like that? So you've written stream of consciousness, you've got backstory, you've followed the energy and then you hand it over to your publisher and the editor goes, hmm, I don't know if this belongs here or do you want to think about this? Or how did the editing process then work? So you probably need to wind back a little bit. So what I do is 
I did write the, the whole thing, as I said, in 14 days, and I didn't put it in the computer. Sometimes when I'm writing by hand, I'll write it by hand all day, and then the first thing I do when I get in the morning is I put it into the computer so I don't lose it. But with this, I was so, so keen to stay in the story. And, and I, thought, I remember thinking, God, if I lose this journal, I've lost the whole novel. It was all just ink on paper. Um, and I have learned, Michelle, to when I put it into the computer, I put it in exactly as I wrote it. If there's a, a paragraph there, which is, you know, or a paragraph that is 27 pages long and there's no punctuation, then that has to go in as it is. How do you not uh, add it? Oh, my gosh, that's incredible self-discipline. Well, I've just learned that... So, and I will. I'll go, come on, Nigel, this is ridiculous. This sentence has been going on for three pages. Just put in at least a semicolon. Uh, <laughs> and then and then I'll start to edit and fast, and then I'll realise why I wanted a very, very long sentence or something, or maybe it turns into something else. And, and I'll even sometimes if the characters' names change, then they will change and I'll pop them in the, the thing into the laptop. And then, then I'm a rewriter. I'm a mega rewriter. I did 40 drafts of Bodies of Men. And there are 12 versions of My Heart is a Little Wild Thing. That's that's the version that wow. was Gabby Nair, my agent, said, yes, it's wonderful. And then Robert Watkins, my publisher at Ultima, who also published me at has shared it um, for Bodies of Men. So, but we still did 12. There are 12 in my computer. Wow. Gabby didn't give me a huge amount of feedback other than she didn't think the end was quite right. Mm-hmm. But she said, let's get it to Robert ASAP. As soon as I got to Robert, then I had that wonderful residency with Julie, uh, Robin and Charlotte. And so I did another version of it after that. And then it was acquired by Ultimo. And I know you know Robert. Mm. And he does give very frank advice too, which is brilliant. Yeah. And I'll, I'll share this with you. He just thought it was too fragmentary. And he said it's beautiful and it's wonderful. It's a special piece of work, but it's too fragmentary. So he wanted me to do a lot of work around that. He also wanted me to do more work around place. And he also um, wrote on the top of my pad, you know where I was talking about those, those manifesto words? He wrote ambition. He said, I need you to be more ambitious. And that was so wonderful, Michelle, because it allowed me just to do, again, even go further into whatever I really want to do. And that's even before my wonderful editor, Ali Laveau, who edited Bodies of Men. And I was always being indebted to Robert for engaging her to work on um, Wild Thing. Mm. And then someone like Ali goes through it with just such a fine-tooth comb and works on the logic and the tiny details and shares this wonderful thing of just putting in the margin NQR, which is not quite right. And it's just, if you just write, that's all she writes. And then for me to go, oh, it's not quite right, is it? So, and then we're really getting down to fine tooth comb, really into the details. And that's even before, you know, the, the copy editing and the proofing and, and that will come up with stuff as well. And, and then, you know, those historical things. I had, I had trams in Sydney, but when the novel is set, oh, it's a contemporary novel, obviously, but the trams, I missed the trams by about six months. So I had to take the trams out. So, yeah, so it's, it's quite a, it's, it's a really extensive process. And yeah. whenever I hear, you know, emerging novelists say that they, they, they would struggle to have their work edited, I think you've just got to get over that. Mm. You've just got to listen to every single piece of feedback that you're given 
whatever it is and respond to it. That doesn't mean you do all of it, but you've got to think and consider everything that you've told. Yeah. Robert's really good at getting you to dive really deep into your characters as well. Mm. He was for me. Like Mm. he said, like, I really want you to go deeper and really think about who they are and their history, what's shaped them. And that, oh my gosh, that just opened up so much. It's great, isn't it? And when you have a publisher at that level to give you that sort of feedback, it's Mm. it's wonderful. And one thing Robert said to me, he said, Nigel, this is literally what he said. Robert probably listened to this and go, God, you're spilling lots of beans, you too. But yeah, sorry, Robert. He said, quote, lean into description. Okay. And isn't that interesting? Because we're often told to lean out of description, that it slows things down. And he said, no, I want you to lean further into it. And, you know, part of the novel is set in Bundanoon. It's actually where my grandmother lived, not not my mother. Um, And it's only 40 kilometres from where I live. And I thought, oh, we'll just drive up there and do a little drive around and take some photos. And I thought, no, I'm going to stay there. I'm going to stay in the pub and I'm going to, you know, walk the streets at 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. and 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. And I did all that. And it was just so amazing. I just wrote notes and notes and notes and notes and notes and notes. And a lot of that material has just ended up in the the novel. And that's because Robert, as publisher, said, you've got to do a better job with that. So I'm very grateful. Robert's very uh, encouraging of emerging writers, so mm. I'm sure he wouldn't mind us sharing some of his pearls of wisdom with, with the emerging writers who listen to this podcast. In fact, all writers. So thank you, Robert. Thank you, Robert. You're a master of uh, setting. Thank I you, Michelle. I 100% there. I've been to Bundanoon. You captured that. I've been to Palm Beach. You captured that. The Monero, we drive there through there every year to go to the snow i know it's only a small fraction between canberra and but those broad expansive plains that desolation the because it's always in winter for us as well i must get down there in summer actually Mm. but you, you really just captured it so beautifully and rather than even just giving us straight description you have this beautiful ability to weave patrick's memories and feelings into it so it becomes really imbued with meaning I'd love you to read a section here Mm. that demonstrates what I'm talking about, if you would. Of course. Wonderful. Okay, so this is quite close to the beginning of the novel. And Patrick has had a terrible fight with his mother. And he, in in space of 48 hours, he has found himself back on the Monero, which he hasn't been to for 30 years. And it's a place that he uh, knew very well when he was a boy. Scattered across the paddocks were the white rocks, quartz, that I used to collect and then display on the bedside table in my room in the barn. I'd imagine they were pieces of the moon or had bubbled up from the centre of the earth. Then there were the oaks of the homestead garden, which were as tall as I remembered, 20 metres, 30, except they now appeared to be struggling. Some of the branches were dead, others thinning. Either the trees were reaching the end of their lives or the weather was more extreme than it had ever been. Or perhaps it was just that the Monero would always have its way. Next came the yard ramp, which I drove across cautiously. And finally, the homestead, sitting low in the garden as though huddled against the elements. White weatherboard walls wrapped around verandas, seven red brick chimneys around the back, the vertical timber walls of the original hut still visible. I stopped the car beside the birch grove and got out. 
As I stood and looked around, I would have heard birds, kookaburras, crows, perhaps the high-pitched tweeting of a wren or a robin. The detail is not important. What is important is this. In that moment, I fell in love with the place all over again. Beautiful. Thank you, Michelle. There's also a beautiful scene where Lewis and Patrick are in the hide. Tell us what the hide is and what that means to them. And then I would also love if you could read out the part where Lewis plays Patrick the piece of music on their last night in the hide and tell us about how you wrote that beautiful scene. I'd love to sort of get into your mind at that point in time. I think what's really interesting is uh, with Bodies of Men, most of it was set in Alexandria in Egypt in 1941. And, and I did try to get a grant to go there. And Egypt, sadly, is not a particularly safe place for lots of people. And so they said, we, we would not support you going, we couldn't send you into what's currently considered a um, dangerous part of the world. And I, and I think there is a, was a travel advisory at the time. So being a government you know, agency, they, they couldn't go against another government agency's advice. And so I never went to Alexandria. I'd never been to Egypt. It was all done off the historical record, which is fine because I, I just spent a lot of time with the War Memorial in Canberra and read diaries and, and looked at Super 8 footage. And it was all done on what, what those soldiers were actually, um, you know, noting, you know, and those soldiers on leave would note that a little donkey was walking around down an alleyway or the food or, you know, beer, because all soldiers, you know, what they really want on leave is they want beer, food and sleep. So, you know, and when they're on leave, they're actually basically tourists. So even if I went to Alexandria, you know, the novel came out in 2019, so even if I went there in 2018, the city's completely changed. You know, and what I'm seeing from me, Nigel the novelist, is not what those soldiers would have seen. So it made sense to just go off Super 8 footage, but it meant that I, yeah, I never went there. So it was a conscious decision that with my next novel, I would set it somewhere much closer to home so I could actually go there and, and, and walk it. And I've been talking, referring to my friend Robin Cadwalder, who's a historic, writer of historical novels primarily, and, and she talks about even if you're writing about the 13th century in London in that era, well, you probably still find echoes of that in London. So she has a sort of slightly different view to it. But And, and I adore Robin as a friend and as a colleague. Uh, what, what it did mean with this is that I could spend a week walking around the farm that became the Mene- became Jim and Bjorn, which is the farm in, in Wild Thing. I could go walking in the bush, I could take photos, more importantly, I could take notes. And with Bundanoon, when I did, you know, stay there and walk down into the National Park, I clearly remember two things. One is you're only maybe 100 metres outside Bundanoon and your phone drops out, so you, you got nothing. But you could still hear the trains and you could hear chickens. You could hear a rooster crowing but your phone didn't work. I also remember sitting in a cafe and the trains go through Bundanoon. There's a freight train that goes through that has a different sound to the, uh, uh, the, the, the you know, country train, which I often take, and that even Bundanoon people will actually just stop and listen to the train. And, and unless I'd stayed there, I would never have got that sense that, you know, of course it's a, 
the whole reason why Bundanoon exists is because of the railway station, but you don't get that feeling of it. Or you're walking the Wartmort National Park, your phone's dead, you're comp- surrounded by the bush, but you'll hear the train. Yeah. And also that idea of when you're walking back into town, your phone starts to beep because you've had some text messages while your phone's been dead or out of out of range. And then you start getting these text messages that made me realise, well, if Patrick is now looking after his mother or his mother's in a nursing home, he's probably going to get text messages from a nursing home. I remember thinking, God, the bush smells like freshly baked biscuits. So I wrote that down on my piece of paper. And I channeled Robert with Robert telling me I had to lean into description. And similarly with... Being on the Monero, you just realise things. You, you'd be very tempted for Ida to say that, you know, you went a, clattered across a cattle grid and the farmers down there call them ramps. They're not ramps. They are cattle grids, but they refer to them as ramps. And I think when you're, when you're in that space, when you, you might see a little robin on a fence post or you just see three sheep staring at you, they're the things that I think you really need to record because it's something that Patrick would, would record. And I, and I, how about I read this little section out now? And thank you for giving me the opportunity to do it. Yeah, this and is it- a beautiful section. So I guess some uh, context is that Lewis is a musician. Yes. Yeah, the, the man that Patrick meets and then falls in love with is a composer. He's is from the Monero, and there's lots of complexity about around that. And it's quite soon they develop a quite a rapport, a, a intimacy, and a sexual rapport. And you mentioned before about the Hyde. So some of the novel is actually set in something called the Camberlong Hills, which I did just make up. And there is a, a hut up there which was used as a bird hide. And I actually happen to love bird hides. I think they're most fascinating things. And there's some bird hides here in Goulburn. And that was the only thing, the animal, which we've sort of skirted around the yes. animal, and the bird hiders and Patrick are basically the only things that sort of stayed constant in all these different iterations. And so there was something about the hide. And even Gabby Naya sort of said, my God, that's all you kept. But this paragraph was not in earlier versions. In fact, it only came in very late. I closed my eyes. By now the low notes had dropped out and there was a plinking sound here and there, water drops. I saw water drops. The low notes returned louder this time, and I saw rain, rain on the Camberlongs, bulging black clouds building higher and higher so that the rain came down harder until the ground was flooding, the waterhole overflowing, the rocks disappearing. I saw Lewis and me, both of us naked and standing in the planting paddock, our arms out wide to the hills, our mouths open to the dark sky and filling with heavy raindrops which landed on us like bullets. But that did not stop us smiling, our eyes wide too, so much light in our eyes. Despite the water and the rain, I felt warm, very warm. My heart was pounding against my ribs. I saw Jim and Buen Road cutting north and south like a scar. I saw the warlikers' homestead in its garden hollow. I saw the old barn, the steading, alone in the bare paddocks, bright light streaming from the windows. The doors opened too, as though though there had been an explosion. Then I realised that the only sound I could now hear was the lowest of baritone notes, just one, an extended drone, which was almost animalistic. The ground began to crack, separating Lewis and me, a cavern appearing between us. 
but then out of the cavern, a translucent wall of blue light. Lewis on one side, me on the other. The music stopped. I don't think I've ever read a scene like that which captures music. I mean, they are li- he's lying in bed listening to m- this piece of music and that is all in his mind. It's so beautiful. Thank, thank you, and It was very kind of you, Michelle. And I probably should have said, yes, so the, the, the Patrick and Lewis have had, just had sex for the first time. Yeah. And for Patrick, it's the first time having that kind of sex or probably any kind of sex w- with someone he knows. And I think there are two things that, that happened. One was Robert saying, be more ambitious. And I think it's tempting in those sorts of scenes just to just under, underplay them, isn't it? Just to mm. say, and, and so what's happened is they had sex. Lewis is a composer and he's written something on his phone. And so they've listened to it with one earbud in one ear and one earbud in, in, Lewis, in, in Lewis's ear. So they're listening to it on a phone. And I love this idea of, writing in different ways, writing outside our habit. And I'm a very slow and considered writer. I do write everything by hand. And then it was actually Charlotte who said, sometimes write in a way that's completely not you. If you're a very slow, considered writer, write very fast. If you're a very fast writer on the typewriter, write very slow. There are bits of this novel that I actually recorded on my phone because I also do do work in the theatre and sometimes when I'm writing a play, uh, I will act out the scenes, ad lib them on my phone and then I type them up again because I'm trying to get some kind of body response. Mm. I'm just going, well, it's good to see you. Oh, it's good to see you. You're looking well. It's a boring scene. <laughs> but if you're good to see you, why are you late? You're always late. We've got something going on, haven't we? And so, yeah, so there is one scene in that novel where I did, I thought, it's just not right, it's just not right, so I recorded it on my phone and then typed that up verbatim. With this, I thought, one, write it very quickly, two, be ambitious, and three, just be ridiculous. It was just this sense of, Patrick has just had sex. He's just not going to go, okay, shall we have a cup of tea now? (laughs) Let's, let's, and he goes into this music. And and so all those emotions that he's feeling and that are remaining in his body, he he sort of imposes on this music, the music imposes on on him. And Mm. so all this stuff about translucent lights and caverns, it's ridiculous, Michelle, isn't it? It's completely ridiculous. But, you know, not wanting to sort of get too sort of, you know, personal, I think that we all remember those various moments. The the first time I ever kissed a guy, I know exactly, was actually my partner. But... But I remember where we were and I remember how I felt and I remember speaking to my, you know, a, a female friend, a girlfriend. She said, what was it like? And I said, now I know how Romeo and Juliet felt. Aww. And she said, no, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard you say. But you say stuff like that, don't you? It's the big love. Oh, we're <laughs> going to talk about that. Yes, you're right. We do all remember those big love moments because... They are so pivotal and your firsts are always incredibly special. So, of course, you're going to imbue the scene with lots of memory. And you you talked before about being very difficult to think about past memories in detail. And yet those those memories, you know, that first kiss, that first meaningful kiss, yes, that yes. first meaningful sexual encounter, 
those fragments come back to you very, very strongly about what was said and where you were and what the mm. smells were and all the mm. different things, don't mm. they? I mean, I guess yeah. literally that those memories stay with you, don't, yeah, don't they? Yeah. And, and music is very pivotal to that, I think. You mm. know, you could be driving along mm. with and a song comes on, you think, oh, my gosh, Blue Light Disco, 1993, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and and yeah, I think that's why pop songs are just so incredibly powerful because yeah. they hold sort of these memories or they trigger things. And yes. music is yeah very important. And and of course, remember you know and you get it obviously because you've read the novel, but but Patrick has never had a meaningful connection with anybody, and he's forty five. And so, I and when I think Robert did say just be ambitious, I went I think this is this is, and because I'm Michelle, I'm such a cautious, reserved person. So I guess I'm allowing Patrick to just have a paragraph where he just describes yeah. things in the most over-the-top way. Yeah. I was going to say exactly the same thing. I mean, that scene happens pretty much 50% of the way through the novel. That is the halfway point. Right, And right. it's no accident in my mind that that is that pivotal moment we were talking about before that is the hinge between Patrick's former life and Patrick as he will now become right, to right. me, that just cracks it open for him because, as you say, it is the first meaningful sexual relationship or sexual experience that he's had. So, of course, it's going to crack his whole world right open. And the fact that it coincides with that gorgeous piece of music, oh, it's perfect. Oh, well, thank you. You're very kind. And, and also because they are in this, this, this hut in the hills surrounded mm. by a bush. And so, you know, he would be thinking about landscape. And, and I'm, I'm just I'm convinced that sort of country does influence us. And uh, Patrick does talk about how he, he feels that Lewis could hear something that other people couldn't. Mm. And so that's all there in this ridiculous scene. But he's one of my favourites. You're not allowed to say it's ridiculous anymore, Nigel. I'm forbidding it. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> it's beautiful. Can we talk about sex? Mm, let's do. One of the things I love about both Bodies of Men and My Heart is a Little Wild Thing is that they both deal with this concept of big love. To me, they have this element of the grand love story. With Bodies of Men, the intimacy was really strong but understated, whether that's because of the time period it was set in mm. Whereas with my heart, we have full Technicolor sex. And in romance, they call that the difference between a closed door versus open door. What drove your decision to open the door on the sex in this novel? It, it wasn't, certainly wasn't written in the most explicit way that it is now. That, that sort of came through the, the redrafting process. And I guess uh, Robert also saying, you know, be am ambitious and get close to character and, and all those things. Uh, I, I guess one of my frustrations, I mean, I guess part of, I mean, I'm 53, so we talked about the era I grew up in that you just did not talk about any of that stuff. In terms of gay sex, uh, there was nothing on this, very little on the screen. If it was, it was often very camp, you know, the gay, gay men particularly were clowns in a lot of stories on television, certainly quite sexless. But when I would see sex actually presented it's kind of like the Mardi Gras brand of sex which is just you know let's just do it and get get on with it and put our heels back on and let's go back dancing and often when I read fiction gay fiction it's just I don't get a sense of intimacy if I'm going to be really blunt about it and I one one ironically a, a, a piece of writing which I think is absolutely superb 
full stop is Annie Proulx's Brackback Mountain. That novella is just incredible. Superb. It's absolutely superb in terms of place and exactly what she's doing. And I think that novella is about much more than gay stuff. And I, I hope Annie Proulx would, you know, appreciate that comment. But it's really... It's interesting because I think that's just got great intimacy and the sex is almost none of us. It's like, you know, we fucked and then in the morning they're fishing again. There's not this, she doesn't go there. Uh, an author like Christos Chalkis does go there. You know, the poet um, Dorothy Porter did go there. And for me, it is it is much more of an act. I'm really interested in the intimacy around it. That's what I always missed just, just in terms of the gay world. I'd actually think, you know, why aren't people holding hands or why aren't we, you know, I, I distinctly remember before my partner, Tim, I just rested my head on a best friend's chest for about, you know, half an hour. And he was actually straight. But it was the most incredibly intimate moment. And he was sort of like touching the back of my head and, you know, God knows what was going on, we're quite young. But I'm actually more interested in that than I am in just, just you know, the the, the, the ultimate act. Mm-hmm. And I, so I, I go for sort of intimacy and tenderness and meaning and, and emotion and I don't aim to be explicit in any way. That doesn't interest me as a reader or a writer. But I had to keep remembering that this is Patrick, as you say, recording a very significant time in his life. If, if, you're, if you're basically going to be a virgin for 45 years, when it finally happens, it's going to be very meaningful. And I think that, you know, he would remember all the different things and just in all the different permeations of sexuality, there's lots of stuff to explore. And we often only explore one of them, but I did want him to think, okay, well, I've done that now and that was beautiful. I've done that and that was amazing and I'd like to do this now and didn't know I'd want to do that, but that was actually quite wonderful and fun and but it always has to come down to two human beings having uh, a, a profound moment of connection. So I, don't, I, I, I haven't heard of the closed door and open door, but I, I just want it to, to be bodily for sure, but also emotional and be something truly, truly meaningful. Yeah, yeah. And it has to serve the story, doesn't it? Because it serves Patrick's character development. Yeah, that, absolutely. And, and I think that... You know, there's the, there's a review in the Saturday paper that came out on Saturday, this Saturday just gone, and it's actually quite a warm and engaged review, and I'm very grateful. It does call the sex, it says it was a bit smutty. Smutty. But, but even the review then goes on to say that it's appropriately so because Patrick is recording these significant events in his life. So you're right, you know, if if you've got a novel where someone's been an out gay man for their whole lives and they're still talking about sex as in, when they're mm-hmm. 50, then that might be appropriate, but it might be <laughs> terribly inappropriate or just downright boring too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you for um, being so honest about that because I think people do grapple with the idea of writing sex and they don't know how far to go and they don't know if they should include it. I have a romance novelist writer in my writing group called Laura Boone and so she introduced me to that concept of Mm. closed door and open door and I hadn't heard that before and I thought Mm. for people who are emerging writers who want to write about sex you know they can make that decision but it has to serve the story it does you're absolutely right and I think also just try try things out so to speak you know just just if, if you're feeling you're being a bit shy in a particular scene then 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 try something you know as I say, you know, maybe write a sex scene very quickly and just see 
how that goes. If you write your six scenes in one sentence as, a, as an experiment, write it over three pages and see what, what that does. Yeah. Uh, and just experiment, I think, and, and go again with body. And, and I, I don't think that we should ever be worried about offending people or if, if people don't like the, this, you know, the, the paragraphs of sex, then, you know. Skip that bit. <laughs> skip that bit if they, oh, did not need to know about that. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, you're right. It has to serve the, the, the core themes of, of the book. And, again, I, I, always, I always say to myself, don't share too much in podcast interviews, and then I just share too much. So that's just... <laughs> you're in good company here now. I am don't in very good company. <laughs> I very much feel like I'm sitting on your opposite couch. But it's really interesting when I did give the final version to Gabby Naya and um, I said, what did you think? And she goes, oh, it's so beautiful. Because she said, oh, Patrick needs to get a life. And she, she meant it in a really lovely way. And, and I, I actually thought, you know, when the people say with character, we need to know what they want and we need to know what they need. And readers will really basically find it essential that the character gets what they need. We love it when they get both. But I think what's more important, another smarter people than may have said this, that it's actually there's a third thing, which is what they yearn for. And so when Gabby said Patrick needs to get alive, I think he yearns for a life. And so as you've been saying throughout this very lovely interview, this is a journey of Patrick slowly having up, getting a life mm-hmm. and sex is a part of that. So that's why I think it actually makes perfect sense and I hope it does for readers. Yeah, I do. I do too. Nigel, before we go, do you have any other pearls of wisdom, your own or Robert's <laughs> <laughs> or channel, Charlotte's? <laughs> yeah, I'll just channel those that you'd like to share or you think would be useful? What did you take from the writing of this book in particular? What did you learn about writing? I certainly learned, oh, they, actually, this is, I, I, there's so many things I could, could share, but I'll just sort of share this. And this comes from a, I don't write much poetry, although I have written libretto and song lyrics, but I, I'm a novelist, not a, not a poet. But I do really enjoy poetry. And I did do a poetry course with a wonderful ACT-based poet, Melinda Smith, and she's um, won the um, PM's Prize for Poetry, so a very eminent Australian poet and a wonderful teacher. And I did a course with her a couple of years ago, and she introduced me to a concept called duende, D-U-E-N-D-E. And it comes from the Spanish poet Lorca. Uh, and it's set in, in, in essence, uh, it's about, there's the muse that says, you know, let's write a lovely paragraph about feeding some rainbow lorikeets, which, which I grew up doing, so it, it does have a memory. But Duende is the devil muse, is the trickster, is the goblin muse who's actually sitting in the corner over there saying, come on, how about we just scale that cliff and go inside a cave and light a fire and dance with witches? And and so for, for him, it comes from the flamenco background and I didn't realise that flamenco is about this sort of dancing with the the devil sort of muse and the, the muse that could lead you astray. It's kind of the good and the bad all working together. And there's an incredible essay um, by Tracy K. Smith, and I think it's called Living in Two Worlds at Once, where she talks about Juende, and she's written a poetry collection called Juende. And when, for Melinda, it is Juende encourages her to write poems, 
about things that people say she shouldn't write about or to say things that she shouldn't write about. And when I was making choices with My Heart is the Wild Thing, yes, I'd go, well, now Patrick and Lewis are going to go for a wonderful walk through the paddock or they're going to go up into the hide and have this incredible sexual experience and they're going to share music. And even I'd be going, no, Nigel, don't they? I'd go, I'm going to follow that little devil muse into really tricky spaces. And I had a rule that if it made me feel uncomfortable, it was the right place to go. Okay. And for Melinda, introducing the concept of during day, it's, it's really, really changed my writing practice to be less polite, less cautious and follow that little cheeky, very cheeky little <laughs> goblin of mischief. And you're going to end up in some tricky places, but they're going to be interesting places. And that probably feeds into that ambition word as well, doesn't it? Be ambitious. It does. It does indeed. Nigel, thank you so much for that gorgeous chat about writing. I've absolutely loved it. Thank you so much. Everybody needs to go and buy this beautiful book, My Heart is a Little Wild Thing, and then come back and listen to this interview after you've read it, and you'll get so much more out of the reading of the book and so much more out of this interview, I think, once you've read the book. What are you working on now? Is there something in the work? I'm doing more work in theatre at the moment. Um, music does play a big part in my life, so sort of doing some more in the sort of performance sort of area, which is really exciting, and that's just completely nerve-wracking. Not that I ever get on the stage myself, but even the writing for the stage. You know, I think literary fiction, novels, anything to do with, with prose is I'm just still in love with, you know, prose and literature are just i see them as miraculous and you know when you do read an incredible piece of work that feels that it's entirely alive how do authors do that all they've got is ink and paper or you know pixels on a screen i'm still in love with with literature and and, and i always will be and, and i'll always just read and read and read and read and read on that note thank you so much for today i've absolutely loved it michelle thank you so much there you go, the wonderful Nigel Featherstone. You can buy a copy of My Heart is a Little Wild Thing in all the usual places. And as I mentioned earlier, if I were you, I'd also pick up a copy of his first novel, Bodies of Men. It's a stunning Australian novel and well worth the price of admission. You can find out more about Nigel at his website, nigelfeatherstone.com.au. And he's also excellent on Instagram. So you'll find him there at ng feathers lots of beautiful photographs of many of the places he writes about in this latest novel and always a few stories to go with sometimes amusing sometimes evocative or poignant but always heartwarming he really is a treasure so who is our june author she is a podcaster a writing teacher the author of five and a half novels what? Five and a half? Well, yes, all will be revealed in my interview with the delightful Pamela Cook, who also happens to be a dear friend of mine. Pam has so much to tell you about writing her last novel, All We Dream, which had a slightly unusual genesis. I can't wait to dive into that with her and share her story with you. All We Dream is a multi-generational story of family, hope, and following your heart. It's the story of Miranda McIntyre, a Sydney lawyer, and her search for the truth about her family. It takes in some beautiful South Coast settings and has an historical thread about an older woman, Esther Wilson, 
that I just found so intriguing. I love the way Pam weaves stories together, particularly with an historical thread. There's so much to unpack with this novel, and I know we're all going to learn a lot with this interview with Pam. So head over to the website, writersbookclubpodcast.com, where you'll find links to buy both the paperback and ebook versions of All We Dream. And then once you've read it, send me your burning writing questions for Pam about how she wrote this book, and I'll be sure to ask her your question, along with 11 million of my own questions as usual. This podcast seems to be getting longer, but you know, I love a rambling chat about writing and hopefully you do too. As always, we have a copy of this month's novel to give away. So if you'd like to win a copy of Pamela Cook's All We Dream, just head over to my Instagram or Facebook where you'll find instructions on how to enter. Entries close on June 10th, but of course, if you're listening to this podcast in the future, there's always a new giveaway every month. So keep an eye on the Writers Book Club socials or sign up to my newsletter at michellebarraclough.com. Okay, I think that's it for this month. Stay warm, Southern Hemisphere people. And if you're north of the equator, have a Cosmo on the beach for me, will you? I recorded today's episode on the beautiful, unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation. Thanks for listening, and I will hopefully catch you next month. Until then, happy writing. <laughs>